following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. As we turn to the Word of God, the text for this morning is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, and it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so if you have your Bibles with you, uh, I want to invite you to turn there, and otherwise you could look up at the screen, and we'll have the uh, passage up here so you can read together. And it reads, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed mercy. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to see the uh, meaning of this text. Help us to understand what you are calling us to. And even help us to understand a bit of what our identity is in Christ and in the gospel in light of what this story tells us this day about who we are in you. So we commit this time to you and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Along with the prodigal son, uh, this story that we just read is probably among the most famous of Jesus' parables. It's in fact so well known that you don't really have to be a Christian to recognize the term Good Samaritan. Uh, Even, you know, those outside the church are familiar with the idea of a Good Samaritan. But before we jump into this parable, we have to know what prompted Jesus to tell the story, what caused them to go into it. And what we're told is that one day Jesus was approached by an expert in the law, a lawyer, who had this question for him which seemed rather straightforward. In verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up and to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this seems like a sincere question from a genuine seeker wanting to know how to be saved, but Luke tells us that there were actually ulterior motives at play here that he basically asked Jesus this question because he wanted to test Jesus. 
And so Jesus, knowing what's in this man's heart, replies with his own question in verse 26 when he says, well, you, you tell me what is written in the law, how do you read it? In other words, what Jesus was saying was, well, you're the expert in the law, why don't you tell me yourself? Well, the man answers, interestingly, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, the reason why this answer is so interesting is it's probably the exact same answer that Jesus would have given if he spoke up for himself. Um, what we have to recognize, though, is that this was really an entrapment that this lawyer was setting for Jesus. Now, I think this lawyer must have heard Jesus teaching enough that he knew that this was Jesus' answer. I mean, in fact, this command is recorded more than practically any other teaching in the four Gospels of Jesus. So apparently, he said this very often when he taught. And uh, what we can say is this. The first half of this command comes right out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 to 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These are the words that every Jew learned from childhood. And they would have committed these words to memory. They would have, in fact, recited these words on a daily basis. And so if you put them side to side, you actually see how similar they are. And so looking at it this way, what you could say is, well, this isn't exactly radical, earth-shattering news for the Jews to hear that Jesus taught that this was the greatest command. But there was something radical about Jesus' command because he added a phrase to the end of it that is not in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He quotes Leviticus 19.18 when he adds, and love your neighbor as yourself. This Deuteronomy 6 was known as the Shema. It was among the most sacred texts in the Old Testament to the Jew. And for Jesus to add to it would have been incredibly offensive to a Jew. You know, you don't mess with a Shema. Uh, who does Jesus think he is? The Shema is one of the most sacred passages and given to God himself. Who is Jesus to come and give his own addition to it? You know, that he can go and edit God's word as if he has the authority to do that. You don't tinker with it. It would be like if somebody messed with the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And oh, by the way, go bears, you know? Um, you just, this is what it must have felt like for the Jews to see Jesus mess with their Shema. By adding this last phrase, though, the message of Jesus is crystal clear. Love for God is inseparable from love of others. You cannot have one without the other. In other words, you can't start talking about your commitment to God and your love for Him without in the very next breath talking about loving other people. The two go hand in hand. 
They're one and the same. But I think it is precisely this part of Jesus' teaching that really irritated this expert in the law because Jesus replies to him, yeah, you, you actually gave a great answer. Do this and you have eternal life. You will live. And in response, in verse 29, we find these words, but desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who exactly is my neighbor? You see, it was like a game of gotcha with Jesus. This is the problem with your teaching, Jesus. You tell us that we need to love our neighbor, but how in the world are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to obey this commandment? It's too vague. It's too general. I can't possibly love everyone I meet. So why don't you clarify this for me, Jesus? Why don't you define it for me? Who exactly is my neighbor that I'm supposed to love? Now, it's very easy to judge this lawyer, isn't it? But the truth is, we're all a lot more like him than we care to admit. Because when God's word exposes our inadequacies and our failures, our natural reaction is not to repent. It's not to ask for mercy. It's to defend ourselves. It's to find any angle that puts us in the best possible light to show that we're doing okay with the command, to find any loophole to justify ourselves. And so in response to this arrogant, self-justifying attitude that this lawyer has about his own view of love and how good a job he's doing in loving others, Jesus tells them this little story to expose his heart. And the story begins with a man going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. The Jericho Road was notoriously dangerous, surrounded by outcroppings and caves and plenty of places where bandits could hide. And sure enough, this lone traveler is attacked by robbers who strip and beat him and in essence leave him for dead on the road. The literal description that is used here is he was left half dead. This is not the picture of a man that is groaning, holding his side, bleeding, it is a picture of a man that is so severely beaten that he's lying on the road unconscious, left for dead. In time, a priest passes by the scene of the crime, but he strategically walks on the opposite side of the road so that he doesn't have to get involved. After that, a Levite happens to be passing by, and he behaves just like this priest who came before him, walking on the other side of the road, to avoid this half-dead man. Now listen. Any Jew hearing Jesus tell the story would have immediately recognized what's going on here. It's an issue of ritual purity. That's the moral dilemma that these two men face because both of them were servants of the temple in Jerusalem. And the law was very clear about coming into contact with the dead. Even coming within four feet of a corpse basically made you ceremonially unclean so that you could not step foot in the temple. Sure, this man could have been still alive and breathing, but how do you know that unless you go up to him and shake him and say, Mr., Mr., are you okay? And if it turns out that the guy was dead, 
then you just made yourself ceremonially unclean for no reason. And in those days, if you remember way back when I was preaching about Zechariah and Luke chapter 1, we talked about the fact that there were literally thousands of priests and thousands of Levites. And because there were so many of them, they were basically put on rotation. They were each given one or two weeks to serve at the temple, and then they would rotate them. And so if you made yourself ceremonially unclean as you're walking to serve at the temple, you basically blew your one shot each year to serve God. And this was God's work. And so you could see how the justification would have worked in the heart of this Levite and in the heart of this priest, saying, I can't get involved here. I just can't get involved. Well, regardless of this issue of ceremonial uncleanliness, I think all of us can recognize that there's something absolutely morally repugnant about the behavior of these two men. I mean, how can anyone with an ounce of compassion See somebody lying unconscious, bleeding on the roadside, desperately in need of help, and do nothing to lend a hand. And you know, the Jews listening to this story would have recognized that immediately. And they would have responded with indignation. Because you see, priests and Levites were not very respected in Jesus' day by the other Jews. They were often perceived as a spiritually bankrupt group of leaders who were more concerned about retaining political power than about serving God. And so you can imagine the Pharisees and this teacher of the law listening to what Jesus is saying, and the response very well could have been something like, Preach it, brother! Glory! You couldn't have been more right about these priests and Levites. You see, because in telling this story, Jesus was using a literary form that was known to them, that was familiar to them. Basically, it was a, a type of story in which you introduce two characters of sort of shady moral value, you know, and they end up ex acting exactly as you would expect. And that sets the stage to introduce the hero of the story, the morally upright person who would come and basically do the right thing. And so at this point in the story... The Jews would have been expecting maybe a fellow Jew, a, a, maybe even a Pharisee or a rabbi to come and rescue the day. But this is where Jesus throws them a curve. Instead of a Pharisee or a rabbi or a devout Jew, a Samaritan enters the picture to save the day. And Jesus could not have chosen a more offensive hero for his Jewish audience. And he knew it. He knew it. Because the Jews hated the Samaritans. When Jesus' enemies wanted to come up with the most hurtful insult that they could imagine to use against Jesus, do you know what they called him? They called him a Samaritan. In one rabbinical prayer, you find this, these very words, and I'm quoting here, Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. Do you understand that? In other words, this is what the Jews were praying. Please, God, just in case you are thinking about it, do not save any Samaritans. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. How much do you have to hate another group of people so much that you literally pray for their condemnation as part of your quiet time? I mean, do you grasp how deep the hatred ran between Jews and Samaritans. It's, if you actually look at the history, just a little around the time of Jesus, 
You know, these Samaritans, what they did was they took a bunch of human bones. And in order to defile the temple, they took these human bones and they threw it into the Jewish temple. And the Jews, what they did was they did one better. They went to Samaria and they burned down their temple. And so the Samaritans didn't even have a temple to worship in anymore. You see, by making a Samaritan the hero of his story, Jesus was pointing a finger right back at this lawyer and at these self-righteous Jews who could so easily recognize the lovelessness of their spiritual leaders but were utterly blind to the lack of love in their own hearts toward people like these Samaritans. In essence, Jesus was telling this expert in the law, the priests and the Levites may hide behind the lame excuse of maintaining ceremonial purity, but you are no better than them because you hide behind your ethnicity to hate other people like these Samaritans. In contrast to this callous indifference of the priest and the Levite, the Samaritan goes way above and beyond what would be expected of anybody who found themselves in this situation. He not only bandages this man's wounds, but he puts him on his own animal, which implies that the Samaritan had to walk himself, and then rents a room in an inn and even nurses this man further back to hell. And then the next day he leaves the innkeeper with a large sum of money, two days' wages, and then in essence gives him a blank check. And he says, while I'm gone on my business, whatever else this guy needs, just the sky's the limit. Just take care of him. And when I come back in a few days, I'll settle accounts with you and pay the balance. And then he comes back a few days later to see how the man is doing. This is ridiculous, the level that this guy goes to to help this man. And so through this example of the Good Samaritan, I think Jesus was in essence telling the lawyer this. You are asking the wrong question when you ask, who is my neighbor? The question you ought to be asking is, how do I become a neighbor like this good Samaritan was that day? You see, when you ask that question, who is my neighbor, you're basically asking, who deserves my love? Who is worthy of receiving my love? And in truth, this is how the entire world operates. You know, there are basically rules to love. There are people that you're supposed to love, and then there are people that you have no obligation to love. This is why parents make such extraordinary sacrifices for their children. Because your children fall into that category of people you're supposed to love. This is also why you treat your friends out to meals, and why you buy gifts for your family members on holidays. But the love that Jesus taught was so radically different than this. Jesus taught that our love is not to be based on the worthiness of the one receiving it, but because we are people who have experienced God's love. In other words, we don't just love our own based on this merit system, but we love everyone because God's love is in us and has transformed us. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 46, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, 
What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. In other words, what he's saying is that kind of love where you just love your own, there's really no virtue in that. Even thieves love their own, you know? I mean, we all have categories of people that are on the inside that we love. But what he says is the hallmark of my love, you recognize when it's really my love, when you're able to love those people that the world doesn't love. When you love the unlovable, when you love the people you're not supposed to love according to societal norms. And I want to argue this. You may have been a Christian for many years and maybe have even grown up in the church. And yet, I want to challenge you that maybe you've never really wrestled with how crazy a teaching this is, how utterly radical it is. Do you understand that if you are a follower of Jesus, Every single relationship in your life is to be characterized and summarized by love. Let's be honest here. I don't think any of us think this way, really. I mean, we try to probably be polite and civil to others, but do we really, would we really honestly describe it as, I love them? In fact, I would argue that for most of us, this is beginning to bring us into some pretty weird and uncomfortable territory, right? I mean, when you think of your boss, is the first word that comes to your mind love? I mean, do you have a picture frame of him on your desk with a post-it note saying, I love you, you know? Um, what about your neighbor that lives next door to you? Do you really ever feel bad because you feel like I'm not loving them enough? Again, I think a lot of the uncomfortableness that we feel and the weirding, the sort of weirded out aspect of it is that, uh, you know, when you think about your coworkers, when you think about your neighbors, when you think about other sort of loose acquaintances in your life, it doesn't even feel appropriate to think about them in terms of love. And I think the reason why we feel this way is because we're so confused about love. I talked about this a few sermons ago. Uh, when we think about love, we most commonly think about it as the way that somebody or something makes me feel on the inside. For example, when I say that I love chocolate cake, I mean that the chocolate cake makes me feel very happy inside. But you see, love is really not the right word to describe your relationship to this chocolate cake. What you really are meaning is I desire that chocolate cake, okay? That's what you really are saying. I desire that chocolate cake. But it really isn't proper to say, I love that chocolate cake. In the same way, when I say to somebody, I love you, typically what I mean is, you make me feel a certain way inside that gives me pleasure. And that's what I mean when I tell you, I love you. Well, if this is our understanding of love, no wonder we don't think about loving our coworkers, our boss, our neighbor, and anyone else in our life. But Jesus defines love not as a self-serving feeling of pleasure that others give us, but as a selfless commitment to put their needs above our own. And this is the kind of love that Jesus calls us as his followers, to give to the world. But I think this is also precisely where the problem arises. 
How do we get this kind of love to give it to somebody else? How do we become this kind of neighbor? Dallas Willard writes very honestly about his own struggle with this. As he says, Some time ago, I came to realize that I did not love the people next door. They were by any standards dangerous and unpleasant people, ex-bikers who made their living selling drugs. They had never tried to harm my family, but the constant traffic of people buying drugs, a number of whom sat in the yard while shooting up, began to wear down my patience. As I brooded over them one day, indulging my irritation, the Lord helped me see that I really had no love for them at all, that after suffering from them for several years, I would secretly be happy if they died so that we could just be rid of them. I realized how little I truly cared for nearly all the people I dealt with throughout the day, even when on, quote, religious business. I had to admit that I never earnestly sought to be possessed by God's kind of love, to become more like Jesus. And I think if we're really honest, we really can identify with what Willard confesses, is we go through huge portions of our day, never even once entertaining the idea, am I supposed to love this person? Because this is just not the nature of the relationship. This is not how society teaches me to deal with this person. That's not the nature of our transaction. But Jesus comes and says, love the world, love everybody. Love everybody that you encounter. It's interesting when you study the great intellectuals who have in essence shaped the world that we know today. What you actually end up discovering is that a lot of them, in fact you could almost argue most of them, lived pretty flawed lives of hypocrisy. Betraying their own beliefs that they pushed on the world. If you think about Karl Marx, the founder of communism, and the self-proclaimed defender of the proletariat. The truth is that he actually never really had any working-class friends. And as far as we know, he never stepped foot inside a factory. But he lived a comfortable life among other intellectuals. In fact, he exploited the only working-class woman that he really ever knew personally, which was his maid, that he, historians tell us, gave an embarrassingly low wage to so that she could barely survive and feed her family. He would eventually impregnate her and then against her will force her to give up that child, that illegitimate child, in order to protect his own reputation. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the great humanistic philosopher who had an enormous influence on the French Revolution, his teachings on the development of a person's character are embraced to this very day by educational theorists who just love this guy. But apparently his developmental theories didn't work on himself. This self-proclaimed lover of humanity fathered four illegitimate children and abandoned every single one of them. Henry Gibson, the great Norwegian playwright, wrote many plays for the betterment of women, like The Doll's House and others, to really fight for women's rights. But the truth is that in his private life, he had a vicious hatred of women and mistreated them. And the parade goes on and on of these intellectuals who proposed all kinds of philosophies for how the world could be a better place if we would only embrace their teachings. 
And yet the lives of these men show us that philosophy by itself doesn't change a life, let alone the world. Do you understand that? A philosophy by itself doesn't change anybody, doesn't change the world. But Jesus offers us more than a philosophy for living, but the power to live the life that he calls. We cannot generate this love that he calls us to by guilt or obligation or even sheer willpower. It only comes when that work of grace is visited on our own lives. As John writes in his first letter, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. In 1 John 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. You see, the only way that we can become this kind of loving person to other people in our life is if we understand how much we have been consumed by the love of God in our own life. To be reminded that this man lying near dead on a ditch, bleeding, was once you and I. That is your story, and that is my story. And while we were laying helpless, Jesus came and bandaged our wounds and rescued us and delivered us from our sin. And now what Jesus calls us to do is to take that same love that we have received and give it to others, selflessly, sacrificially. Jesus calls us to break out of the traditional roles that society dictates to us and show love across all of our relationships, no matter how inappropriate it may seem to others or how awkward it may be at times. And you know, this is the truth. I served as a missionary for five years in Africa. But in a lot of ways, I found it easier to love like this there in a place like Africa than I do even here. You know, whether it was rescuing AIDS orphans or helping AIDS widows or resuscitating a person that had crashed in the hospital floor. But here in quiet bedroom communities all over suburban America, lie families left and right who seem like their lives are so put together and who, in essence, just let, basically want to be left alone to live their quiet American dreams. There's been such a breakdown in community in our world today that I think this challenge of loving everyone becomes so hard for us. Uh, Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon um, give us a picture of suburban life. And it, when I read these words... Uh, it just really uh, gripped me how accurate this is of the world that you and I experience. And they write, Have you ever wondered about the invisible family that lives in your neighborhood? You've never actually met them, but you know they exist because you've glimpsed signs of life around their house. There's the dad. You know him by the sedan he drives. When his garage door opens at 7.30 each morning, he's already inside his car. The motor starts. He backs out of the driveway and takes off down the street. Each evening, he zooms straight into the garage again. The garage door opens and then shuts, and he's inside the house without a trace. Then there's the mom. All you've glimpsed of her recently is her minivan. She zips their kids around to a mass of activities, probably going to soccer, karate, violin lessons, and play dates. You know about these activities mostly because of the different uniforms that the kids are wearing as they pile into the car. 
The, the stick figure decal on the window is also helpful. A kind of suburban map legend on the rear window that tells you, the neighbors, how many kids the family has and what they like to do. Their kids always seem to hang out in the back seat. You can't really see them, uh, see much of them because the windows are tinted. But you can see the glow of the dual DVD players as the van passes so you know they're in there. Isn't that a perfect picture of suburban life? We're all so disconnected. We're all living such private lives. And I wonder if I were to ask you, how many of you even know the names of your neighbors? How many of you have ever engaged in a meaningful conversation with any of them? And I think there's a real sense in which we can hear the story of the Good Samaritan and yet never make it out of the gates, you know, to even run this race. Because it just feels like All the momentum is working against us to even start with that first awkward hello to get to know your neighbors and reach a hand out to them. You know, I, in the previous neighborhood that Betty and I used to live in, I mean, you know, we actually got to know our neighbors when we were staying with our parents and, you know, I mean, even one of the neighbors we got to know so well that they were sending us gifts while we were in Africa. And, you know, the kids would come out to play when school was done. And since our kids didn't have school because they were missionary kids, they'd all be out there in the streets playing and you just chit-chatting, found out one of them was actually a guy that went to my high school. And we'd talk about, you know, Libertyville high school days and all that. This new neighborhood that we live in, I found it to be very difficult to break into. No one seems to go outside much, you know. And I, I found it very hard to sort of even figure out how to say hi to half these people. And so it's been something that's really been burdening me. How am I going to make any headway into getting to know our neighbors? Uh, Just share a brief story, just interestingly, is, uh, you know, this elderly man lives next door to us, and he always is very gruff and unapproachable, you know, kind of scary. Always walks out on the lawn shirtless, you know? He just it looks like, like, you know, like a mafia don or something like that, you know? And so I always felt very awkward about it, but, you know, when winter rolled around, uh, one of the things I did was I just started, I, I had a snowblower, and he just had a shovel. So he, my part of the sideway next door is just like five feet. His is like 30 feet, going all the way down, because it's pretty much the length of his lawn. So I just started snow blowing his side of the street, uh, his side of the sidewalk. And first time I did it, he was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know? And I just told him, I said, you know, I got a snowblower. It's okay. I'll just do the sidewalk for you. And when I, said, when I said that to him, just this big smile came across his face. And that really was the first step in transforming our relationship with each other. Eventually found out that his name was Arkady, found out that he was a retired Russian guy, that really felt like he was in the mafia still, I don't know, he still scared me, but uh, had this really gruff Russian accent, which I love to hear, and over that time now, whenever we go outside, I just walk over there and we'll chit-chat a little bit, but it all began when I decided to clear his side of the sidewalk, and sometimes it just takes a little act of kindness like this to begin to break through some of that ice and say, listen, you know, basically the way our society is, it basically should be, we don't really talk to each other. But I want to break that, and I want to break that barrier and extend a hand of friendship, and I want to love you. Let's pray. 